The Honorable is the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be Good afternoon and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Um, I'd like to introduce our panel this afternoon. To my right is Judge Hunter Murphy. To my left is Judge April Wood. Uh, the court was opened by our clerk, Mr. McFarland. We have two cases on the docket for argument this afternoon. The first is State versus Shine. And uh, if there are no preliminary matters, we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon. May it please the court. I'm Benjamin Cole here on behalf of the appellant, Mr. Cody Sheen, today. I'd like to reserve at least half of my time for responding to the Attorney General's arguments. So you would like 15 minutes? Yes, sir. Uh, first, a bit of background. Right. Cases like this all start with the same presumption. Warrantless searches are unconstitutional, always. Right, so how does the state get past that presumption? Right? Probable cause. And how do we determine if probable cause exists? Right? We engage in a case-specific, fact-focused review of the totality of the circumstances. Right? Those are the well-established, long-standing default rules in a case like this. Now, up until now, right, there's been a relevant exception to the totality of the circumstances rule. Right? And this exception tells us that we can ignore all the other relevant factual circumstances and zero in on just one single detail. Right? And because that one single detail substitutes for the totality of the circumstances, then obviously that detail must be a slam dunk of a detail. Right? And this is the so-called odor alone exception, or in some cases I would say have more accurately called it the plain smell or plain odor exception, which of course is just a variation on the well-established plain view exception. There's a short step to probable cause called reasonable suspicion. Is that correct? As a definition of probable cause, Your Honor? No, as, a, as if someone has, if an officer has reasonable suspicion that criminal activity may be af afoot, they have a right to further investigate. And if that leads to probable cause, then that's a valid Fourth Amendment search. Is that correct? I would agree, Your Honor, that there are two important stages in, in the analysis you just described, right? Reasonable, articulable suspicion to initiate the interaction, right? And there's no dispute here that the officers were justified in walking up to the car to initiate the interaction. Now, we've addressed this issue in State versus Parker, correct? Which issue, Your Honor? The issue of whether or not uh, the, quote, smell of marijuana or the smell uh, is sufficient to give an officer reasonable suspicion to do further investigation? Reasonable suspicion, not probable cause. Well, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the question. Reasonable suspicion, if, if officer has reasonable suspicion that criminal activity may be afoot, right. then they, they do have the authority to further investigate, which may lead to probable cause. Correct. As a general proposition, there's no dispute there. Right? But, the, yeah. but, but the facts of the case here are that the reasonable suspicion led the officers to approach the car and initiate the interaction with these individuals, right? It only then took 10 seconds before, in the officer's mind, probable cause existed to handcuff, remove the individuals from the vehicle, handcuff them, and engage in a warrantless search of their vehicle. So I think that the focus here is squarely on the existence of probable cause. And I in Parker, we said that if you have the smell of marijuana together with other incriminating or suspicious circumstances that would also support and that could be a high, a high crime or high drug area or something unusual about the vehicle. I think in this case the fact shows this vehicle was actually backed into a parking place at a motel. Yes, Is that sir. correct? That's correct. And the motel was situated in an area, at least the officers testified, uh, was a high crime area. Correct. correct? So going through State versus Parker, how do those two additional factors go into the court's analysis? Your Honor, I would back up first and address the, the, the phrasing that we have to use. I think we have to be very 
precise with our language now in the age of legalized hemp, right? The smell of marijuana no longer exists, right? That is a scientific impossibility based on the definitions that the General Assembly has given us, right? So anyone who says they smelled marijuana doesn't understand the legal definitions that are relevant here, i.e. the definitions of marijuana and the definitions of hemp, right? So if we say that the officers smelled cannabis, then certainly that is, there's no dispute that that can be one factor that factors into the totality of the circumstances review. Now, to the second part of your question, the, the uh, nature of the neighborhood and the parking position of my client's car, right? If we're considering those, if, let's just assume for argument's sake that the trial court found as fact that those were factors that led to the decision to execute this warrantless search. The trial court did not find that, but let's assume for argument's sake that the trial court did find that. Right? Then we have to consider those two factors along with any properly made finding of fact about smelling an odor. Right? There are no properly made findings of fact about smelling an odor. The reason for that is simple. Right? The trial court here found as fact that the officer smelled marijuana. Those are invalid findings of fact because that is a scientific impossibility, right? No human being can smell marijuana any longer based on the definition of marijuana that the General Assembly has now given us, right? And I know that might be sort of conceptually sort of difficult for us to wrap our, hands around, our heads around. It is very much a paradigm shift right, in, the, in the Controlled Substances Act, right? Would you like to expand on what you mean by based on the definition that the legislature has given us right now, it's an impossibility yes. for anyone to smell marijuana? Thank you, Your Honor, yes. Marijuana, b before the legalization of hemp, the word marijuana was synonymous with the word cannabis, right? Marijuana was defined until I believe it was 2015 to include any part of the cannabis plant, right? So if I said I smelled marijuana or I smelled cannabis, those were synonymous. There was no distinction. But now, legal, with legalized hemp, there is an important carve-out to the definition of marijuana, right? Cannabis that has 0.3% or lower of THC is not marijuana, right? And there's no dispute here. This court has recognized, you know, what the state itself has said in the infamous SBI memo, right? No human being, not even a trained police dog, can distinguish between the smell of marijuana and hemp, which again is why it's very important to emphasize it is scientifically impossible for any human being to quote, smell marijuana. We have to remove that phrase from our lexicon if we're going to be faithful to what the legislature has done, which is to redefine marijuana in a fundamentally important way. But here the court made a finding that the officers believe they smelled marijuana and in fact the defendant was found with marijuana, is that correct? Not that he believed, Your Honor, and I think that's an important point, right? There's no finding of fact here that the officer formed some sort of subjective opinion about whether he was smelling marijuana versus hemp, right? The, the trial court found as fact, as Sergeant Bowie approached the car, he smelled an odor of unburned marijuana, right? And that is the critical finding of fact that is scientifically impossible and therefore not supported by competent evidence. Let me ask you this, if, if, um, if the officers came upon a car in a high crime area backed into a parking place, would that standing alone be sufficient to uh, allow the officers to investigate further? To investigate further, not with probable cause, just to approach the car to investigate further? Right. Of course. So whether he smelled marijuana or not, or whatever he smelled, approaching the vehicle, there were other circumstances which would have validated reasonable suspicion on his part. In this case? Yes. I would disagree with that, respectfully, Your Honor, because I think if the court is going to consider these other factors, the neighborhood and the parking position, then the court is engaging in appellate fact-finding. And let me explain why. There's two important reasons why I think that's true. We're just looking at the face of the order, right? When the court, when the trial court in its findings of fact is talking about these two other factors, right, in finding of fact nine on page 45 of the record, the, the trial court explicitly finds as fact that the manner in which the car was parked combined with the high crime nature of the area prompted the officer to make the decision to search the car, 
right? So first, I would argue that that's a finding of fact that the trial court made about why these were, perhaps they were reasons why the officer's attention was first drawn to the car before they smelled anything, right? But then very importantly, that initial investigation revealed additional information, right? Regarding both of these factors. Yes, this was a high crime area, but my client was there because he was living at that time in that high crime area. The evidence is uncontradicted that he was a guest at this hotel. Right? And so it fell to the trial court to say, well, all right, sure, the high crime nature of an area might be a red flag initially for reasonable suspicion, but that investigation then revealed additional information, and so we have to consider what that additional information is. And then as a matter of fact, the trial court here determined, well, that initial suspicion was dispelled. Right? And this is a key element of our uh, Terry case law, right? Yes, you know, reasonable suspicion can be formed based on, you know, seemingly innocent facts, for, like such as the nature of the neighborhood or the way a car is parked. But if that investigation reveals additional information that dispels those initial suspicions, then we can't just revert to the initial suspicions and pretend as if the new dispelling information does not exist. Would Terry stop uh, allow an officer to ask the occupants of the vehicle to exit the vehicle? I think it's well established during any traffic stop for safety reasons an officer can do that. Yes, Your Honor. For, for officer safety, sure. for an officer, for a pat down. So if, if, if they had, if they lawfully approached the car, regardless of the smell, and they lawfully asked the occupants to exit the vehicle, at what point did, 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 the officer not or did have probable cause. In this case, at what point? Yeah, because once, I think the testimony was, once the door was opened, the smell of the, of the substance became even greater than what they had detected as right. they approached the, is that correct? Correct. The finding of fact, I believe, show that too. Right. So again, I'm sorry. The so I, I'm saying even then, you're saying they could not search? At the point that the smell became stronger, when the window was rolled down? Or when, or when they exited the vehicle. I think the nephew stepped out of the car, correct? Uh, yes, he was in the passenger seat. He exited first, and then the other officer circled around and asked my client to exit from the driver's side. And that's right. the point where basically their, quote, their smell became stronger, or their, or their detection of odor became stronger at that point? Well, I believe in the, in the officer's mind, the probable cause was formed before he asked. He didn't ask them to step out for safety reasons. And again, this was not uh, a, a traffic stop, so I'm not sure that the law that by default allows an officer to ask you to exit during a traffic stop would apply here because this was not a traffic stop. So, it, but I think the, the findings of fact, the trial court's order, it's clear that the, the asking them to exit was not for safety reasons. Asking them to exit was for the purpose of executing a warrantless search, i.e., at that point, probable cause in the officer's mind and in the trial court's mind had already been formed based on the smell. Regardless of that, their intent and what they believed was probable cause, aren't we dealing with an objective standard for all of this instead of subjective? Um, on a de novo review of the findings of facts. Right. right. So what impact does the fact that these things were found to have been what prompted Sergeant Bowie what impact should that have on our analysis of totality of circumstances? Thank you, Your Honor. Yes. And, well, as I was explaining in response to Judge Tyson's question, I think there's, and I got to one, I didn't get to the alternative. I think the first answer is we have a finding of fact from the trial court that shows that the trial court, as a matter of fact, concluded that, for example, the nature of the neighborhood was not a factor that contributed to the probable cause decision. Even if we ignore what we see on the face of the order, then alternatively, case law says we can imply findings of fact that are necessary to support the trial court's ruling. The trial court's ruling is clear as can be, right? The trial court ruled probable cause existed based only on the odor that the officer smelled. Therefore, we can imply findings of fact that explain away, that dispel those initial suspicions about the parking position and the nature of the neighborhood. Because again, in, in, this is explained in, in my reply brief, the, the trial court was very open about the fact that it did not trust this officer, right? Twice the trial court said it was troubled by the way the officer conducted this investigation. 
troubled by the fact that it only took 10 seconds upon approaching the car to handcuff these individuals and to execute a warrantless search. At right? what point in this interaction, starting to come up on your rebuttal time, so I'll, I'll be quick, but at what point do you maintain that the trial court or that the officers needed probable cause as opposed to just reasonable articulable suspicion? What was the, the point in the interaction where if you don't have probable cause, it needed to stop? When they asked them to exit and handcuff them for purposes of executing a warrantless search. I think that's the point where you need probable cause and that's where probable cause here did not exist. <clears throat> and I think it's worth emphasizing, uh, you know, before we get to these questions about the other factors uh, or about whether the order alone doctrine is no longer valid, issue three here is one that I think arguably the state the attorney general has all but conceded through its silence, right? The trial court entered its ruling based on state VT explicitly. The state's understand, I'm sorry, the trial court's understanding of Teague was explicitly wrong, right? The trial court believed that state VT held something that state VT says it explicitly did not hold, i.e. that the order alone exception has survived the advent of legal hemp. So apart from anything else that we discuss here today, for that reason alone, this case has to go back to the trial court so that misapprehension, that fundamental misapprehension of law can be corrected and that the trial court then can rule in the true legal light. If, even if we determine that that was a mistake and what just we had here, is that an issue that would need to be remanded or when we just make the conclusions of law new and just set aside his reasoning? Uh, no, Your Honor, I think the law is clear that if a court enters its order based upon a misapprehension, the remedy is not for the appellate court to make guesses about what the trial court would have done in the first instance if it had properly understood the law. The remedy is to send it back to the trial court and say, hey, you were wrong. You were fundamentally wrong about the, the single basis for your ruling. Correct that misunderstanding and then re-decide the case to see what outcome you come to. And again, I think this is a case where the trial court was very clear that it was reluctant to rule in the state's favor for a number of reasons. Right, and so if the court understood the law correctly, it's very likely that the court would have reached a, a different conclusion. You got about 13 and a half minutes left. Would you Thank like you. to reserve that? Or I will, Your Honor. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Dunn, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Your Honor. May it please the court. My name is Zachary Dunn. I'm here on behalf of the state. The trial court correctly denied defendant's motion to suppress by finding that the odor of marijuana is alone sufficient to support probable cause for a warrantless search. And in the alternative, the totality of the circumstances presented in this case supported a warrantless search of the vehicle. Uh, first, this court should hold consistent with its prior precedents and precedents of our Supreme Court uh, that the smell of marijuana is alone sufficient to support probable cause. And putting aside the Industrial Hemp Act for only a minute, uh, sort of the legal background before the Industrial Hemp Act was passed, uh, we have a couple of cases, one from this court that I'll point out and one from our Supreme Court. Uh, our Supreme Court case is, is the Greenwood case, um, where the Supreme Court held that this court, quote, correctly concluded that the smell of marijuana gave the officer probable cause to search the automobile for the contraband drug. Uh, now my friend on the other side says that that's a passing reference, but uh, respectfully we don't see how that could be anything other than uh, a binding uh, holding from our Supreme Court. It's certainly not dicta because it went straight to the issue in that case and straight to the issue in this case. Now that, that decision is a 1980 decision. It is, 1981. It, yes, it says 1980 in your brief, but anyway. <laughs> the, um, that does predate the legalization of industrial hemp, correct? It does. So I think the background or the backdrop, the legal backdrop before the passage of the Industrial Hemp Act is the smell of marijuana is alone sufficient for probable cause. So the question becomes, of course, whether the Industrial Hemp Act changed that, uh, displaced that long settled law. And we would say no and start with this court's decision in Teague. Of course, the, not the one that was withdrawn, but the one that, uh, that is still binding to this day. Um, and in that case, the defendant argued that the passage of the Industrial Hemp Act altered the legal landscape surrounding marijuana and THC. And this court specifically rejected that argument in broad language, 
uh, saying that at the root of these arguments is a fundamental misapprehension concerning the state's burden of proof at each stage of these proceedings, none of which the, the provisions of the Industrial Hemp Act affect to the degree that the defendant in that, in that case contends. Uh, and so really this case has already said, look, the Industrial Hemp Act does not fundamentally change the legal landscape uh, of the marijuana and probable cause doctrine. Now, I, I will grant my friend on the other side and, and, and of course recognize that that case had different facts and different legal issues, but the, the broad language of that case supports our uh, argument here, especially uh, the trial court's citing, or excuse me, this court's citing with approval uh, two federal court cases, uh, which are the Harris and Brooks case uh, cases, which I think really gets at the heart of this matter. <clears throat> Uh, in Harris, which again was cited with approval by this court, uh, the, the Eastern District of North Carolina said the smell of marijuana alone supports a determination of probable cause, even if some use of industrial hemp products is legal under North Carolina law. This is because only the probability and not a prima facie showing of criminal activity is needed for probable cause. And that's really what we have here. Probable cause is not a high standard. Uh, you know, the fact that if there may be some legal industrial hemp in North Carolina uh, does not change the analysis because once the officers smell, I'll use my friend's term, cannabis, whether it's um, illegal marijuana or legal industrial hemp, uh, the, the officer at the scene under that low standard has uh, a reasonable probability uh, that, that that odor is coming from marijuana. And under you know, the backdrop case law uh, of Greenwood and Mitchell from this court, that's alone sufficient um, for the officer to conduct that warrantless search because he or she has probable cause. How is that any different, Mr. Dunn, than, you know, we get done here today, I walk out with this glass, completely clear. Looking at it right now, sight, you don't know if this is vodka or water or anything in between. If I go get in my car and I still have this cup in my hand, is that probable cause that I've got an open container in my vehicle? No, Your Honor. I think that would be a little bit different. Now, if, if there was smell emanating, you know, we're in an odor case, you know, there was smell of, of vodka emanating, not that I would say anything about Your Honor, but I think that that would be a very different thing. But looking at a, <clears throat> a clear glass with clear liquid uh, is, is very different than looking f uh, at a green leafy substance that smells like something that has been illegal in North Carolina for dozens and dozens of years. Uh, so we would- Well, isn't the SBI memo basically saying it is the same because there's no way to tell this legal product from an illegal product? So the SBI memo um, does say that the, that the two substances uh, appear alike and smell alike. However, given the legal backdrop that the smell of odor, uh, the odor of marijuana is alone enough, uh, and given you know, this court's holding, uh, which is binding in Teague, which cited Harris and Brooks, uh, we would say that you know, still the smell of cannabis, whether the cannabis is uh, marijuana or, or hemp, uh, that gives the officers probable cause to go find out whether it's marijuana or hemp. Is there any other legal product in this entire state that there's an ability to do that for? Standing up here, Your Honor, I can't think of one. Um, no. I think there's a precedent on alcohol <clears throat> that basically if you've got a cough syrup and you're stopped, um, the odor, even though it's legal to have cough syrup, the odor of alcohol, is that not an analogous situation? I think that, that might be, Your Honor. Um, I'm not completely sure which case, I don't have a case site for you on that, uh, but we really would, we think um, we win on, on Teague, Harris, and Brooks, really, those cases. Uh, it's not dicta, it's a binding holding from this court, uh, citing with approval uh, our friends in the federal court system. Is State versus Kitchen, it's a 19, it's a 2022 case from this court. Yeah, and, and your on, honors. On, on the odor. Yes, and before I forget, I did want to, Sorry, did someone ask something? <laughs> I was looking down. Um, before I uh, forget, I did want to flag one issue for your honors. There is a case pending before this court. It was heard in November of 2023 that has this exact same issue, uh, whether the smell of uh, marijuana is enough. It's the In Re uh, JVP case uh, that your honor, uh, uh, Judge Wood, is, is on. So depending on which case gets to the finish line first, 
uh, there might be some new binding precedent, uh, either from this case or from that case, uh, just so your honors are aware of, of that being out there. <clears throat> um, so has that case already been argued? It, it was not argued. It was heard without oral argument in November uh, of last year. So, um, I did want to touch on uh, argument three in uh, the defendant's brief, uh, the so-called misapprehension of law. Uh, and it is true, I mean, you can look at the face of the order, uh, that the trial court here did cite uh, the Teague opinion that was later withdrawn. Uh, we would say a couple of things about that. First, the new Teague opinion is extremely similar and holds essentially the same thing as, as the prior withdrawn opinion. And <clears throat> it is well settled in North Carolina that on a motion to suppress, uh, the question for review is whether the ruling of the trial court was correct and not whether the reason given was sound or tenable. That comes from uh, State versus Hester, a 2017 case by Your Honor Judge Tyson, and it's citing uh, Bone, uh, a, a case from our Supreme Court. And so, you know, as this court held in DeWalt, a correct decision of the lower court will not be disturbed because a wrong or insufficient or superfluous reason uh, is assigned. So what these cases essentially hold is, yes, the, the trial court did cite to the wrong Teague. I think the, the, the new opinion in Teague was out at the time that this order was entered. However, you know, the ruling on the motion to suppress, the question for your honors is, is not whether a, a wrong or superfluous reason was given, but whether the correct result was reached. So your honors can, uh, can really do that, you know, especially in the conclusions of law, um, take, the, take the findings of fact that are binding and come to your own conclusion about whether the smell of marijuana is alone. In considering, you know, doing a de novo review and, and looking at the findings of fact, I'm, I'm a little confused and maybe I shouldn't be, but findings of fact seven and nine seem a little contradictory on record page 45. Seven says this occurred at nine o'clock at night, but then in nine, it's being regarded to as a high crime area in the late hour. We're looking at only an hour and 15 minutes after sunset in September. How should we, if we disagree that there's any way to consider that a late hour, how does that come into our totality of circumstances? Um, I, I don't think it does. You know, in, in finding of fact seven, there's the specific time. And I'm sorry, on page 45. 45, it's uh, the, the last sentence in finding of fact nine. Nine, okay. Uh, yeah, the late hour. And I'm just, in finding of fact seven, I have it saying as, as approximately 9 p.m. Yes. Okay. So it looks like sunset was 745. <clears throat> right. Uh, oh, I, I understand now. Um, you know, Your Honor, of course, all findings of fact have to be supported by competent evidence. If the panel believes that uh, 9 p.m. is not a late hour, uh, the court could find that uh, that little piece of finding of fact uh, 9 or, yeah, nine is not supported by competent evidence. And we found it, you know, a lot of times our cases tend to go hand in hand with high crime areas and the hour. If the, the hour disappears from our high crime area consideration for totality of circumstances, what impact should that have, if any, from state's perspective? Uh, we would say none, <laughs> and for this reason. Uh, although, if the court finds it's not bound by the finding of fact that that is a late hour, I think the finding of fact that it was 9 p.m. is still binding on this court. That's what the testimony was. That, yes, so we have uh, both, you know, the high crime area, the car being parked in an unusual way, and whether or not it's a late hour, 9 p.m., which is darkness. Uh, so I think we still have all three of those elements um, in the totality of the circumstances test, uh, which I would like to turn to now, so thank you. <clears throat> um, this court could do what the Teague court did, uh, which is determined that it need not address whether the odor of marijuana is sufficient and simply held, hold that the totality of the circumstances, uh, so the odor of marijuana or cannabis, um, plus the other circumstances in the case are sufficient for probable cause. And like I was talking with Judge Murphy about, what we have is, of course, known high crime area. We have uh, the vehicle backed into a parking lot uh, we have uh, Detective Bowie's detection that the odor of marijuana emanating from the vehicle, and we also have the defendant um, sweating profusely. Now that's on page, uh, transcript page 44. 
So we, uh, our argument, our, our alternative argument, if your honors find that the odor of marijuana is no longer alone sufficient for probable cause, is that the totality of the circumstances here, all the things I just described and we've been talking about today, uh, give rise to probable cause uh, for the search of the vehicle, which ended up finding, of course, uh, marijuana and, and a handgun and all sorts of other things. And the handgun that was recovered, I think um, the record shows the defendant is a convicted felon, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. That, and the handgun that, 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 the, the, that was recovered was also a stolen handgun. I believe that that is correct as well, Your Honor. <clears throat> Unless there are any further questions, I'll just conclude. Give me one second, Mr. Dunn. Let me just double sure. check real quick. Absolutely, Your Honor. If we find no probable cause, does the state dispute that the defendant wasn't in custody and that the search could have been proper? Are we done at probable cause? Um, so a couple of answers on that. Of course, it hasn't been briefed. Um, our position would be that the defendant was in custody at the time he was placed in handcuffs, certainly. But if your honors find no probable cause, uh, we would think that a remand would be appropriate for further, a further hearing, further development of the facts to see, uh, because as my friend says, um, on the face of the order, uh, the only holding is that the odor of marijuana alone is sufficient. So if your honors disagree with that, um, uh, one option is for the court to simply vacate and remand for a further hearing on, on the motion to suppress. The other cases, the Folsom case that I referred to earlier, is an unpublished decision. But um, if there are other incriminating circumstances, such as the sweating and the, the way the vehicle is parked, the time of day, and the location, uh, that would that how does that factor into the officer's ability to approach the car for further investigation? Well, I think it gives the officers the ability. My friend on the other side says, you know, those factors led to reasonable suspicion, which allowed the officers to uh, approach the car. But essentially, then you have to wipe the slate clean. To get to probable cause, you have to think up or, or discover uh, completely new reasons. You know, the, the fact that the uh, car was in a high crime area and was parked the way it was and all those things don't matter because they already fulfilled reasonable suspicion, so they can't be a part of probable cause. We disagree with that completely. The, uh, at the time the officers approached the vehicle, they didn't have any uh, knowledge that uh, there was an odor of marijuana, but they had all of those circumstances. And so uh, the circumstances that gave rise to reasonable suspicion plus the odor of marijuana gave rise to probable cause. Were they able, I asked a question uh, to counsel for the defendant whether or not the officer could ask him to step out of the car. Um, that's normally part of a Terry stop. Yes, Your Honor. Here's a situation where you've got a, a vehicle that's stationary. If he approached and asked them to remove themselves from the car, would the officer have been within their rights to do that? I think, I think so, Your Honor. Um, first. In the absence of a Terry stop. Right, yes, Your Honor. I think so, in this particular case anyway, because the testimony from the officers was that they, desired, they decided to um, approach the vehicle uh, as you know, any officer is allowed to do and simply ask uh, the defendant questions. Now, if they, if they ask the, uh, the defendant while well, he's not being held, he's not uh, being, been seized uh, under the Fourth Amendment, and they ask him to step out and he, d he complies, uh, we don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Were they, was the defendant and his nephew free to leave? That's, that's a tough question. Let I me put it a different way. If, if they saw the officers in the parking lot at the hotel, saw them coming to them and they just crank up and drive off, did they have the right to do that? If the officers had not yet smelled the odor of cannabis. Uh, I want to be careful here. Yes, Your Honor. They saw the officers in the parking lot. They saw the officers walking to, toward their car. 
would the defendant have been free to crank their car and leave? Uh, I don't think so, because at that point, I believe everybody, I, I can be corrected, of course, I believe everybody agrees that there was reasonable suspicion. So that would have given the officers the ability to effectuate a stop. Now, what happened here is... Reasonable suspicion before the smell of marijuana? Before the smell of marijuana. Based on Somebody sitting in the parking lot of a hotel they're staying at is reasonable particular suspicion of what? Well, of course, the officers didn't know at the time that the defendant was a guest at the hotel. All they knew was it was a high crime area. Uh, the defendant was parked in a particular way that indicated, you know, uh, that it might be drug related. And it was at night. Um, again, I, I'm happy to be wrong here and I can be corrected by my friend. I, I believe everybody agrees that that gave rise to reasonable suspicion, which would have allowed a stop in this, in this case. What um, percentage, and this is probably just going to come off snarky, so I know you don't know the answer, but what percentage of this state, urban areas are, geographic percentage of the urban areas of the state that are considered high crime areas versus not being high crime areas? That's a good question. I, I have no idea, Your Honor. <clears throat> How do we ever make a determination of what is and what is in a high crime area when the record doesn't say, this is how much crime happens here. It's just not a high crime area, high crime area. We see it in every case. I saw it in every case in Waynesville. I mean, what are we doing here with high crime area? I, I think we have to rely on the officers on the ground. You know, their testimony, their sworn officers, and at the time they're giving this testimony, they're of course sworn into court. Um, we have to use their training and expertise and their testimony to determine whether it was a high crime area. I know it is a little bit of a squishy standard. I, I agree we've seen it in multiple cases, if not, you know, a majority of the, at least the Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, but, you know, when, when, we, when it does come up in a case, I think we just have to rely on the testimony of the officers. So that is that a, a <coughs> testimony that is not subject to any review well it's it's subject to a granted, the trial court could say I don't believe this was a high crime area trial court can make that credibility determination right. but is that statement of high crime area beyond appellate review but, and to back if, up, if it's found as finding a fact I think so yeah uh, well you know the the court has to look to whether there was, this court has to look to whether there was competent evidence we would say that it's an officer's testimony. An officer's well, testimony saying that there was a high crime area. Uh, we think so, and of course, that officer's testimony is subject to cross-examination. You know, a defendant's counsel could say, uh, "How do you know it's a high crime area? What tells you that it's a high crime area?" Here are some, some statistics that I have that show that there's only two crimes in the last year, and then that would give rise, maybe, perhaps, to the trial court not accepting that testimony, that uh, officer's testimony on that point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thank you, right. sir. Thank you. We'll just uh, urge your honors to affirm. Thank you. Thank you. As to high crime areas and, and, and whether that's sort of uh, something that can apply as a red flag in every single case, I would direct the court's attention to the, uh, the, our Supreme Court's decision in State v. Johnson cited in my brief, uh, 378 NC 236. The dissent in that case, uh, which relies on the majority from another decision, State v. Jackson, I think really articulately drives home the point that uh, it's, it's a problem if we're saying that being in your neighborhood is an indicium of criminal activity just because you happen to be poor enough to live in a high crime area and cannot move out of that area, right? And I think that point is especially important here because as we discussed earlier, we have the initial, the initial suspicion based on the generalization, but then we have the subsequent information which dispelled any suspicion, right? Imagine a scenario where an officer sees a, a, at night a shadowy figure, head hidden under a cloak, standing on a corner known for drug dealing, and an individual exits a nearby house, walks up, engages in a hand-to-hand -hand transaction, and returns back in the house. Now, of course, we can all easily imagine those factors being part of the totality of the circumstances that leans in the state's favor. But imagine the officer approaches that individual to continue his investigation, as Terry says he can. 
And he finds out that this shadowy figure is an 80-year-old grandmother waiting for her ride to go to a late-night church service. And the individual who approached her was her grandson. She left her $20 on the kitchen table that she wanted to make as an offering at church. Are we going to ignore those facts and just pretend as if all we know is the initial information? That doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly what happened here with regard to the other factor. Yes, we had the initial suspicion based on the parking position and the uh, nature of the neighborhood, but we had subsequent information that dispelled those suspicions. And so if this court is going to ignore the information dispelling those suspicions, the trial court's reliance on that additional information, then this court respectfully would be engaging in unlawful appellate fact-finding. Now, as to Teague, uh, the state says, the Attorney General is arguing that we win on Teague and the uh, federal trial court cases discussed within Teague. Um, I mean, we can have an academic discussion on what is or is not binding precedent, but I think the important point to emphasize in Teague is that the panel there explicitly told us that they were not answering the big question here of whether the odor alone exception must end. And therefore, if we're relying on Teague at all, it is not binding precedent for the important question here. In our cases since then have recognized that it's still a remaining question. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but to the extent that Teague does discuss the big question, and to the extent that it does rely on these federal court cases, uh, again, non-binding, non non-presidential trial court decisions, I think it's important to emphasize just how nonsensical, with all due respect, those cases are. Right? Uh, take a look, if you would, please, first at the Harris decision. I'm sorry, the Brooks decision. Right? The discussion in Brooks of the legalization of hemp occurs in a very unique context. Right? The discussion of hemp there arises in the district court judge's deferential review of a magistrate's credibility determination. Right? That's the limited role that the district court judge was uh, operating in in Brooks. Right? So even in that context, right, the court then says, all right, well now we have legal hemp and we still have illegal marijuana. Right? Then the court says, and this is the part quoted in Teague, Therefore, if hemp does have a nearly identical smell to marijuana and hemp was present, it would suggest to this court that the officer was even more reasonable to believe that evidence of marijuana was present. Now let that sink in. If legal cannabis is present, that fact alone makes it more likely than illegal cannabis is also present. That makes no sense. Right? That only makes sense if you have some inherent bias against people who legally possess cannabis. Right? I have cannabis in my pocket right now. Right? According to T, according to the position that the Attorney General is arguing for, right, that one fact alone means that probable cause to conduct a warrantless search exists. Right? That is not the world the General Assembly has decided that we live in. Right? The General Assembly has created a new world. And again, it's a paradigm shift, and it might be difficult for us to wrap our heads around, but a paradigm shift has occurred here. Right? I can legally possess cannabis. Right? I have just as much a right to smoke a Marlboro as I do a hemp cigarette. Right? If I'm driving down the street smoking a Marlboro and I get pulled over for speeding, Right? Am I going to be worried about the fact that I'm smoking a Marlboro? Well, no, that's not going to make my predicament any worse. But if I'm driving down the street and I'm legally smoking a hemp cigarette, well then, yeah, I'm going to be scared. Because right? I'm going to think, well, I know the law. I know the law that the Attorney General thinks should continue. That smell alone means I'm putting my constitutional rights in danger. Right? So what might I do? Right? I'm going to be afraid of the police intervention into my life interfering with my privacy rights, right? So I'm going to be nervous. My hands might start shaking, right? I might start sweating profusely. My heart might start pounding so much that it's perceptible. I might spray air freshener to cover up the smell, right? But paradoxically, I'm having all of these very reasonable fear-based reactions, but those are only giving the police more justification to infringe on my constitutional rights, right? This doesn't make sense. 
Right? There is no reason why this one factor, the smell of cannabis, which could be legal, could be illegal, should continue to serve as a substitute for the totality of the circumstances rule. Right? It only made sense, and again, I think it's important to emphasize that the, the cases that describe the old rule as the plain smell rule, those are really the more accurate way of phrasing it. Right? Because the plain view exception to the warrantless requirement, the case law is clear, right? That's rooted in the idea that the, inherent, the incriminating nature of the object to be seized is immediately apparent, right? The famous case we all studied in law school, right? The officers couldn't, they saw the stereo, they couldn't pick it up to look at the serial number to confirm it was stolen property, right? The, the, the incriminating nature of the stereo was not immediately apparent. Right? You can't even pick up the stereo to look at the, the serial number on the back of it. Right? Before the legalization of hemp, all cannabis was illegal. So the smell of cannabis made the presence of contraband immediately apparent. That is no longer true. Right? There is no longer any justifiable reason for ignoring the totality of the circumstances rule and substituting in one single detail that, as just Judge Murphy, as you pointed out, could just as easily be something legal or illegal, hemp or marijuana, water or vodka. I mean, you can come up with as many examples as you want to. But the point is, the General Assembly has said, I can legally possess cannabis. And it's important, again, to emphasize also, as I tried to do the best I could in my reply brief, right? the state saw this coming. Right? The SBI memo makes it clear that the state saw the writing on the wall with the legalization of hemp. They predicted all of these problems. They predicted that enforcing marijuana law, as we have become accustomed to until now, would become more difficult. They went to the legislature and said, please don't do this. And the legislature said, sorry, we're going to legalize hemp because this is a great financial boon for our state. Right? Do, oh, is this court bound by the determinations of the Supreme Court until they're overruled? I'm sorry, in what case? Is this court bound by the determinations of our Supreme Court until those are overruled? Absolutely. Um, the states argued extensively in their brief about Greenwood. Yes. And the language in Greenwood is very clear. And I agree that it does predate the, the passage of the statute. But if this change is going to come and we're bound by the determination as it stands, where is this court's ability? to disregard the express ruling of our Supreme Court? I would give two alternative responses to that, Your Honor. Uh, first is that the, U the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision in Greenwood is not binding precedent on this question. And again, perhaps this is more of an academic discussion about what is and is not a binding holding of a case. But the definition of which I'm aware is that if you can remove language from a decision, and the outcome is unaffected, then the, the language that you can remove is dicta, non-binding, right? The issue that the Supreme Court was considering in Greenwood had nothing to do with this odor alone question, right? There were multiple issues in that case. State lost, uh, well, I might have it backwards, but whichever state appealed up to the, to the Supreme Court raised certain issues, but not this issue. And so, the Supreme Court on it, so this issue was not briefed, was not argued before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, for whatever reason, just chose to mention in passing that it thought what the Court of Appeals had done was proper, but that was not necessary for just addressing the issues that were actually raised before the Supreme Court. And, no. and are we bound by this court's prior determinations as well? If the facts are the same, but I think what we're we have to recognize here is that the facts have changed. The facts on the ground have changed. The rationale for the rule has changed. So the court has to acknowledge that shifting landscape. It's like, for example, consider what if the General Assembly had taken it a step further and legalized all marijuana, all cannabis. We went the, you know, as far as we could. Would we still adhere to prior case law that says the smell of marijuana is on its own probable cause for a search? Of course not, because we have to well, recognize the marijuana, landscape. Marijuana itself still is illegal in North Carolina, correct? And it's also illegal under federal law. Yes. So the fact that you have legalized a certain form of a plant, how does that, Im how does that impact or negate 
the law where some other portions of that plant remain illegal under state and federal law. Well, it doesn't negate the fact, no one's arguing that we're negating the illegality of marijuana, right? Marijuana, of course, is still illegal, right? The question is whether now the smell that we smell, right? The question is how, whether smelling that smell continues to be an acceptable reason to ignore the totality of the circumstances and rely only on one single factual detail. And I With think the evidence of, of a potential possession of a contraband substance yeah. is that does give an officer an ability to investigate further. Do you agree with that? To investigate further, absent probable cause. Well, it, as we talked earlier, step. Probable cause is, is the ultimate basis on which to, to place someone under arrest. Reasonable suspicion gives the officer some latitude based on circumstances they have observed in their knowledge and training that allows them to investigate further. Uh, Terry stop. You, you agree with that? No, Terry stop, yes. Well, community policing, well-being, there are a lot of other exceptions other than just a Terry stop. There can be, you know, well-being check. There can be community uh, caretaker. There's a lot of other exceptions. Uh, you know, you see two people sitting in a car at night. Uh, there may be someone hurt. So I think the officer had an ability to make an inquiry. Sure. Do, do we agree with that? I, I would have no problem. If the officer walked up and said, hey, roll down, can we ask you gentlemen a few questions? Sure. Oh, I, I smell that. Uh, uh, what is that I smell? I mean, there's no problem with having these types of interactions and the police asking questions. There's no dispute there, Your Honor. But I don't, you don't need, I don't think, in a circumstance like this, and if I've said so before, I, I think I misspoke, I don't think the neighborhood, the parking position equals reasonable articulable suspicion of criminal activity. Uh, but you don't need to even get that far to initiate these sort of innocent encounters. Does the record indicate at what point the officers became aware that your client was a legal resident of the hotel? Uh, it, immediately upon, yes, it, I think if you look at the transcript, if you look at the videos, it shows um, almost immediately upon rolling down the window, my client turns out the window and says, oh, I'm staying here. He says, oh, I'm just, you know, looking on my phone. He was shopping on his phone. He says those immediately before the officer says, please step out. Let me just, is there anything in the record that shows when the officers found out that that statement was actually truthful? Uh, I, 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 I see a lot of reasons not to believe somebody that just tells you, yeah, I'm staying right here. Right. I believe the transcript, in the transcript, I believe the officer said he had no reason to question that. But again, I think that's a question of fact, and, and we revert back to the fact that the trial court dismissed this factor, and if, if that's not apparent from the face of the order, then it has to be implied, because the court's ruling shows that these other factors played no role here. And let me ask one more question, um, just as a procedural thing. It's hard to keep up with every case that they issue cert on across the street. Are there any um, pending cases over there right now dealing with the plain odor doctrine? The Supreme Court, I don't believe so. I have the Dobson case. I think Your Honor is on that panel, uh, the one that co-appellate uh, counsel here represented. But uh, at the Supreme Court, I am not aware of any. Not aware of any that they've issued cert in yet at this point. Not that I know of. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What would you have us do? I would have you, please, Your Honor, uh, reverse the trial court's ruling, vacate the judgment, and remand this back for further proceedings. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we appreciate the good arguments. The case is submitted.